Welcome to, uh, um, what do they call it, a uh, hangover party of the amazing Hanukkah lit bash that we had. So this is a little uh, recovery party of that holiday celebration that we had. It was, was incredible. I spent the whole, I was talking to Jonathan about this, I spent the whole Sunday cleaning up the house and Shira as well and my kids and the whole day we were smiling it was the greatest day ever my kids were so happy uh, we were walking around you know like how they do it in um, where you have carnivals in the, in the parks and they pick up the, after carnivals they have like a row of people walking with bags bending down to pick up stuff have you seen that so we felt like that's what we did here we got all our kids in a row Starting from the from the trees, we had a game. Everyone got a uh, bag, and we literally went down on a, in a row, picking up every little piece of dirt that was on the floor. We had people coming to clean, but it wasn't nice. There's like a limit, you know. You know, how your mum says to you, "Hey, clean up." The cleaning lady's coming. Has your mum ever done that to you? <laughs> so. Or, or somebody's you know, housekeeping is coming. Please clean up the clean up your room. I'm like, mom, what does that mean? If the, if housekeeping is coming, then what the what on earth do you need me to clean my room for? Because there's a limit. That's why. There's a limit to how much mess you can make. You know, if you make so much mess, it's like, dude, you know, she's not going to clean up your own dirt in the bathroom. There's a point where you know you got to do something yourself. It's just rude, you know. So. So that's how it was with us as well. We had these uh, cleaning ladies come, but it was still too much, so we had to also clean. And we had the mop, the floor was mopped multiple times. Till, but you should know, every minute of cleaning up was joy. We were smiling the whole way, because we just felt like we brought so much happiness to so many people. And uh, it was beautiful. Now, let me tell you something. I don't know if you could tell, but I'm pretty orthodox. So, <laughs> yeah, what? Um, and you know, in our circles, it's uh, a party like that is not okay. Like we don't, we don't dance like that. Uh, we would probably, you know, and we don't honestly like. It's not something that I feel like I'm, I'd come to it. But it's not something that I would go. Like you wouldn't see me in a party like that, right? You'd be like, "Hey, Rabbi, what the heck are you doing here?" Uh, oops, the Rabbi's here. I used to walk past frat parties in, in on campus. And I specifically would turn the other way so the guys wouldn't see me and feel bad that I'm watching them haze all these people. So I would actually turn the other way. <clears throat> I don't want people to feel bad. But really speaking, like, it's not the kind of party that our community would run. But that being said, I still believe that there's something beautiful in it and the unity and the coming together and it's a community that we have. And I, I once said that if there's going to be a party like that, wouldn't it be better that it's in our house than somewhere else? You know, if, if let's say somebody has, a rabbi has a child that's not connected to Judaism, right? A rabbi has a child that's not connected to Judaism. Wouldn't he be happier that his child's in my house partying here as opposed to partying somewhere else? Of course he would be. So I really truly believe that there is beauty to it, even though... Um, you know, it was the way it was, and 
and it, it was amazing. It was beautiful in every aspect. The, the music, the the party outside, the booth, the, game. uh, the games, uh, the bartending. Uh, so yeah, thank you to everyone that made it happen. And there was a huge crowd of people behind it. Um, but some of them are here. I don't even know who was on exactly who was. I know that Jonathan, I know that Chaz, Alison was involved too in making this happen, and Sarit. Uh, anyone else? I don't know. It was like a whole thing, like weeks on end of prepare, preparing. And of course, my amazing wife, who's the mastermind of everything. But it was really an amazing uh, party that I've been smiling since. I can't take the smile off my face. I have a study partner in Nebrea who's a Hasidic uh, Jew, he's very smart. So I tell him about what we do. I was like, we had this massive party. He's like, no, 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 how was it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I'm like sitting in front of this like, very holy man and I'm like, it's an amazing party. <laughs> you know? uh, it's just, you know, some people say, you know, who, who says that you can have fun? Who says that you can have fun in, uh, you know, in the religious community? And, you know, you should just send them to, to us. We have a lot of fun running all these events and having everyone in our house. And uh, there is a lot of work that goes behind it and a lot of stress and noise, as you can hear in the background, which is why I'm using the mic. Um, but there is, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. But at the end of the day, if you look at the whole picture, that's, that's life. You know, it takes effort to put something great in the world and... We feel amazed. We feel amazing. I mean, we had over 150, 160 people. That's that 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 bought tickets. Over 150 people that came through. So you know, and then there's more people that came at the end, and it was it was amazing. Anyway, so that being said, I do want to continue our Pukavot study. So we're going to learn some things, and then we'll finish off short and sweet because we're already starting quite late and it feels like there's a fire going on. But anyway, so uh, um, what was I going to say? So there was once in Israel when I was in Jerusalem, I was amazed. Listen to this. I was going to a, a store in the Bukharim Shuk, which is like, a, a, it's like going to a very religious neighborhood where they sell lots of books and other things. But Mainly, there's a lot of stores which are selling Jewish books and Jewish artifacts and different things. So I walk into one store, 12 o'clock in the afternoon. It was around that time. The guy, his store was packed. Tons of people, tight little space, and everyone was looking at his books. And he's like, excuse me, uh, in Hebrew, Slicha ani sogel. Like, what? I'm closing. I'm like, what? What do you mean you're closing? No, I'm closing. I've got to go in five minutes. I've got to go. Please, everyone's got to go out. Five minutes and then I've got to go out. What do you mean? He says, he says to me, every day I close at 12.05. I've got a, a shiur, something like that on those lines. I've got a time where I go to a Torah class and, and I close my store every single day. And I looked at him and I was like, wow, you're willing? Small store, you know, probably not making that much money. But you're willing to give all that up for something greater than all of that. And what kind of shield is this? What kind of class is this? Which rabbi is speaking? How can he be so good that he'll take over 
your uh, will to make money. What kind of teacher is this? But the truth is that in uh, Jewish understanding, there's something beautiful in that. Where you've got something in life which is larger than life itself, than work itself. When you're able to say that I know I need money to make money, but there's something else in life that's more important than all of this. My wisdom, my understanding of this world, some time to sit down and think. To me, when I saw this man, I saw greatness. He, he didn't have a long beard. He wasn't like this guru looking rabbi, if that makes sense. He wasn't like anything unique. Simple man. In the afternoon, he closed his store and boom. It was just everyone. He kicked everyone out. And I was one of them. Kicked me out. And closed this show, took down the shutter, and went to study. It, to me, that was the, one of the great... I've never seen that happen. How can life be so important that something that you're learning is so important that it's more important than you're making your money and survival? He has a family to feed. Now, I need this hour. This is an hour that I have that's no matter. Talk about priorities. And this is what Shammai said. Listen to the language of Shammai, one of the greatest... Scholars of the Talmud, he said, Make Torah for you permanent, not temporary. Make the study of Torah permanent. The things in life which are temporary and the things that are permanent. Making money is temporary. At the end of the day, it's temporary. Things are temporary. All the things we own, our home, everything we have, temporary. People that I know are, are getting sick. People, because, you know, I'm suddenly getting older. And there's people that, my uncle, this one, that one. There's so many people that I heard recently that passed away. Life is so short. Boom. There's so much that is temporary. It says that the wise people make the permanent permanent. And the temporary, they treat it as temporary. But the ones that are mistaken they're clouded in the world they make temporary as permanent and permanent as temporary they make what's really important temporary and they say ah, i don't need that as much ah, family or whatever it is the most important thing is making some money and then what happens is that over time that catches up with you and many things left are left behind the corner they're left behind but they are very important they're much more important. And that's what it says. It doesn't just mean study of Torah. It means the lifestyle. Make that the words of the Torah, the teachings of the Torah, is permanent, is something that you do no matter what. And the things that are temporary in life are temporary. You treat them that way. That's what he says. And I think it's mind-blowing to me. There's, there's so many stories. By the way, a person that's able to do this is calm. Oh, I lost some money? Fine. You, you cheated with me a bit in business? Fine. Whatever. It's money is money. And I've seen it with my own eyes. People with faith, people that have priorities in the right place, they are upset. It's hard. It's tough. Don't get me wrong. They're not lose, they don't lose their humanity. They are as humane as everyone else. But when they lose their money or they lose their business or whatever it is, they realize they are able to calculate the situation because they know that their place right now 
the thing that's bothering them is temporary. They'll get upset. They'll get bothered. They'll move on. It's an amazing thing. Ah, here's an example. David Melech, David, who became eventually the king of the Jewish people. But it wasn't like that from the beginning. His entire life, if you read Psalms, it's the, the, one of the most hot books on sale for, forever. The Bible's the most sold book in history, right? But David Melech Psalms is one of the greatest prayers that's said ever. His entire life was being chased. He was hiding most of his life by a king, threatened to death. His entire life, eventually he became the king also. But most of his life, he was chased. Horrible. Things that you can't imagine. And what did he say? You know the song? Even if I walk through the valley of death, I will not be afraid because God is with me. What does that mean? I have the right priorities in my life. I'm not afraid. Ah, someone's going to hurt me? Fine, it's stuff. When a person's able to have the right priorities, things that get in your way are just pushed aside and you know exactly how to react in the right situation. There's a story of, I once told you this, Rabbi Victor Miller, a great rabbi, he died in the 90s. He said that he would never forget, he walks out of his house and one of his neighbors is in 90 years old, no exaggeration, 90 years old and is engraving in his front yard a, 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 his name on like some kind of sculpture. He's 90 years old. And he's putting his name on a sculpture. And he says to himself, as he's walking past, he says to himself, oh, he's making the temporary permanent. It's nice to put your name on some kind of sculpture and have it nicely in the front of your house. But it's very depressing when you know that you're not going to be here for long. And that's what you're going to leave. That's temporary making it permanent. What, what, what is it going to help you? So you put your name on a rock on the front of your house. That means that's everything for your life. There must be something greater than that. A person needs to ask this question. When he walked past that, he was like, wow. Obviously, without telling him anything, but learning as a lesson for himself. I hope that when I'm 90, I'm not busy in my front yard putting, it, putting my name on some kind of, uh, making my mark on some kind of rock so that people will remember me. Right? That's the kind of thing you do on fresh concrete, you know, as a kid. I did that once on my neighbor's concrete. I put my, my initials on it. But the neighbor kind of realized very quickly. There are other things I did. I once bought a BB gun. Here, try and get your attention. I once bought a BB gun and, um, and shot my neighbor's car from the window with it. I was literally maybe about five years older than Abraham. And I was in my window. I was like, I had my own room. I was like, oh, let me... Shot his car within five minutes. He's knocking on my door. My dad comes running in my room, and he's like, "Where is it? Where is it?" He finds, he finds it, he finds it, and he's like, "What is this? What is this? It looked, it looked like a good gun. You know, it's like a heavy metal. It was a good one. I mean, my neighbor was a good distance from my. Uh, it was one of these. Do you know these ones that you crack and you put the pellet in it, then you crack it up, and it's like. Psh. No, you don't pump it. There's no gas, but it was. Yeah, it was nice. It was good. So, I, but, but I'll never forget. My dad was like, what? What's, 
what is this? What is this? So I said, it's nothing. It's just a small thing, whatever. He's like, fine, shoot it. Shoot it in the sink. I'm like, no, I'm not shooting in the sink. <laughs> uh, memories. I love my dad. Anyway, so um, th those are the memories of... Where was I? So, oh, so he was at his... Uh, where was I? I did it to my neighbor once. Put my, it's the kind of thing you do as a kid. Right? You want your name to be remembered. How? By damaging somebody else's property, you know? Like, here, I was here. But at some, at some point, you, you'd hope that when you're 90, you're not going to be running around putting graffiti on somebody else's wall. Even your own wall, you hope that you don't put graffiti on. Because there's more to life than things. If you have to put your label on things at that age, it means that that's everything. That's, that's the hours that you have to spend. That's everything. Not judging that person. But at the end of the day, if that's everything for me, I hope that I don't reach an age where I'm 90 and that's my everything. I'm spending time doing other things, like with my grandchildren. Or... Okay. Oh no. There's a great Rabovadi Yosef. I don't know if you've heard of him, but he's a great, great rabbi that passed away uh, about, about eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago. And he, I'll tell you two amazing stories with him. Number one, Everything good? You can ask questions by and talk, by the way. It's small enough to be comfortable. Rabbi Yosef, Netanyahu, there's a video on YouTube of him. You can search it. Netanyahu, as the Prime Minister, walks in to speak to Rabbi Yosef for a blessing. Before, by the way, any kind of war or battle, he would go to Rabbi to speak to him and get a blessing. So he went to the greatest rabbi, of, one of the greatest rabbis of our generation. He goes in and says, hey, I need a blessing before... Netanyahu never does... He doesn't go by himself. There's a whole crew of security. A whole security going into his house. Netanyahu walks into his room. Th thousands of books. Rabbi Vadi Yosef till today, his house is like a museum today. People go there just to see the books. Hundreds of books. He has 40,000. We say around 40,000 books in his home. His whole house is covered in books. Books that he, only he owns, some that have not been discovered, some that he managed to, when he left Egypt, uh, he was a rabbi in Egypt at some point, he escaped Egypt with many of them before, whilst the state of Israel was being established, many Jews got thrown out of Egypt, he managed to run out with many, many, uh, many books. Anyway, Rabbi Vadi Yosef, Netanyahu walks into his, off, into his room where he studies Torah at a very old age, he doesn't notice a thing. And don't tell me, no way, he's faking it. He did not notice a thing. He was studying like this. Netanyahu walks right up to him. And they tell him, Harav, Netanyahu is here. And he's like this, learning like this. Like this, you see a video of it. He's completely immersed in his study that even Netanyahu doesn't bother him. He's studying his Torah. That's called the Torah Trakeva. There's nothing important Besides for my understanding of this world and being more smart and more in, in serenity. Just to understand when I, the, the level of how much Torah can get you to, how much meditation and understanding. That there's nothing as important. You make everything temporary. This is, this is number one. That's how he became the person that everyone wants to come to see him. It's unbelievable. I'll tell you one more thing about him. 
This is a story that's given over. I heard this story this year by one of the people that worked for him. It's, it's written in many books and many people have said the story. It wasn't only, it was mainly with one guy, with Arya Derry, who's also somewhat in politics. So Rabbi Vadi Yosef, in his old age, had to go for an operation and they had to put him to sleep. The problem was he was already very old and they were worried that if they put him to sleep, he might not wake up. Too dangerous to put him to sleep at this point. But he needs the operation. So what does he do? He says, what's the problem? He hears the commotion. They're talking. There's, he's an old man. So they're talking to one of the people that work with the rabbi, Rabbi Derry. They talk to him. He hears noise. He says, what's the problem? So he explains to him, Rabbi, they, wanna, they need to put you to sleep to help you so that you can get healed. But they're worried that if you... Uh, if you're going to wake up, if you're not put to sleep, if, you, if we put you to sleep, you're never going to wake up again. You're, you're not in the age where we can do it to you right now. He said, what's the problem? Bring me a Talmud. Bring me this and this Talmud. The downstairs in the Sharei Tzedek Hospital in Israel, in Jerusalem, there's a, there's, a bed, there's a synagogue there. He says to him, bring me the Talmud from downstairs. The Talmud, whatever Talmud you have. He says, which one? Anyone. He goes downstairs, gets him a Talmud. He brings the Talmud to the rabbi. The rabbi says, give me a few minutes. Let me study the Talmud and tell the doctors they could do whatever they want. They don't need to give me any anesthesia, nothing. Just let me study for five minutes. Whenever I say, let them come in and do whatever they want. He studies for five minutes. He says, Are you rabbi, you can't do this. There's no way. It's dangerous. Don't worry. They can do whatever they want. Let me just... Five minutes with the... And don't tell me this is a story of 100 years ago, 200 years ago. This is now. 10 years ago. So he says, no problem. They give him the Talmud. He sits with it for five minutes. He closes it. Closes his eyes. He says, okay, they could start. They did the operation. They did the operation without putting him to sleep. And he's like this. And the doctors come out. To, Ar- to, the, to the, his Shamash, Ari Deri. Ari Deri said, I couldn't sit there watching him. I just couldn't see the idea of them doing an operation with him, without, even if he says it's fine. He went outside. The doctors come out. They were shocked. They said, I can't believe it. This man is an angel. They called him back in. Ari Deri comes back in. He goes up to Rabbi Ovadia Yosef and he says to him, Rabbi, Rabbi. The rabbi gets up from his study in his deep thought. And he says, no, tell them to start already. When did, are they, did they start the operation? When are they starting already? Tell them to get on with it. He already took, they did the operation to him. He didn't feel a thing. He was so immersed in his study. Just to understand that how study of Torah can get a person to a next level, that they're out of this world even. But the rabbis say at least, I say Torah make Torah study something you do every day, so you're always growing. We said this already a few weeks already in a run. If you're not learning something new every day, you're not living. Living means you're growing every, you're different today as you were yesterday. Different today as you were two days ago. That's called growing and that's called living. Okay. The next thing that the rabbi said was, Say a little, 
and do a lot. He's used to the Hebrew statements, uh, the sayings in Hebrew. Tili also, right? In English, it's under promise and over deliver. You've heard that saying before? Let me talk about this because the rabbis don't just say under promise and over deliver. They say tzaddikim, righteous people, under promise and over deliver. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's not a good policy to have. It says that righteous people under promise and over deliver, wicked, evil people, Overpromise, yeah, 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 and then do very small amounts. Okay, this is a, it's, it's a virtue, it's a value. Now, the question is, why? Why do you think it makes you righteous or it's a sign of, of a good character if you say a little and do much more? Why is that a sign of, of a tzaddik, of a righteous person? I would say it's a good thing to have, you know, you're in business. You're doing a deal with someone, say, you know what, I expect that we'll get 100 sales from this. Comes out, you have 1,000. You knew it was going to get more than 100. But you say, I'm only going to get 100 sales. It comes out, you had 1,000 sales. Wow, the guy is so excited. This is fantastic, right? It's much better to say a little and do much more than to say, yeah, we'll get, we'll have an event. We'll have 2,000 people coming and then you only have 100. So everyone's like, right? But if you say, we're only going to have 10 people coming, (laughs) And then you have 150, right? Then it's, then it's awesome, right? So say a little and do much more. It's much more important. That's good for business. It's good for many things. But why would you say that it's a righteous thing? Where do we learn this from, by the way? Does anyone know? Eitan, you know. To be humble. To say a little, it's important to be humble. Where do we learn this from? Say a little and do a lot. Where do we learn it from? Oh, we learned it from Abraham. Abraham. Yes, Abraham was going to prepare a meal for the three angels. He sees them coming and he says, come, 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 please come to my home. Have a bit of water and we'll give you some bread and then you can carry on in your way. I want to host you a bit of water and bread. Wash your feet, a bit of water, some bread. And what does he do? He runs inside. He says to his wife, quickly, we, we have guests. Let's run. And his wife prepares cakes and Food and he goes and prepares some tender meat. He runs and he gets three different. Abraham, Abraham was a shepherd. He had hundreds of cattle, and what he did was he said, "I'm not only going to give them meat. I'm going to give each one of them the best meat of the animals." So he slaughtered three animals. Right? Sorry if you're vegan here, but this is the story. He slaughters three three animals. And each, to each one of his guests, he gave him the best meat from each animal. That's what he did. So he gives them the meat. And what does he do? He gives them so much food. What does he say to them at the beginning? Come, we'll have a bit of water. Come, you'll eat a bit. And what does he do at the end? Psh, meals after layers. It wasn't just one meal. There were courses. That's how you should be. That's a tzaddik. That's a righteous person. Who's a wicked person? It says Ephron. Who was Ephron? Does anyone know? He did the opposite. He said a lot and did a little. Why? What happened with him? Does anyone know the story? Ephron. Abraham wants to bury his wife. His wife dies and he wants to bury her. Where does he bury her? Does anyone know where Abraham and Sarah is buried? In Israel. Huh? One second. 
Does anyone know where Abraham is buried in Israel? Hebron. With Sarah, Adam, and Chava, Isaac, and Rivka, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, Rachel, right? The patriarchs and the matriarchs are buried in Hebron till today. Abraham wanted to buy the land to bury his wife. Abraham was a very powerful man. So he comes and he says, please, I want to buy the land to bury my wife in this plot, in this area. They said, no, Abraham, what an honor that you're coming to buy, to buy land from us. We own so much of this land. You know what? Take it for free. Abraham says, no, I want to pay for it. I want it to be mine. I want to pay for the land that I buried my wife in. I don't want it to be somewhat yours as a gift. I want it to be mine. Please let me buy it. He said, oh, you want to buy it? So eventually he says to him, Ephron says, 400 silver. Not that just any 400 silver, the best value of 400 silver bars, like ham, the, the most expensive type. That's what he tells him. Now that's a lot of money. He says, are you buying it? Okay, fine. 400 million dollars. He's like, what? You just said free a minute ago. Now you're saying 400 million? That's called wickedness. They staff and they say, yeah, we'll do business. We'll work together. We'll work together. We'll work together. And suddenly he says, give me 80% of the profit. 80%, I did all the work with you. Give me all the profits. Right? You know these type of people. You say, we'll work together, we'll work together, 50-50. And suddenly they say, no, I deserve 90% because you, you did less work. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? So that's called wickedness. But why is it called righteousness versus wickedness? You might say, okay, it's a good thing to have. Why is it called righteous versus wicked? Do you understand my question? If you want to say, you say, who is a good person? Right. Who's a good person? Someone who says a little and does much more. I can think of other things that, this, that show me a sign of a, you're dating. Who's a good person that you're dating? Oh, she's got good values. What's her value? Oh, he's got good values. He says a little, he does much more. Why would that be a sign of somebody that's, you'd say, okay, he's, got, he's a good guy, you know, or he's got, he's got good ideas. He's a good businessman. He knows how to you know, talk people into things, doesn't show everything up front. He's a good poker player. You know, he knows how to hide his, hide his cards. But why would I say it's a righteous thing? What do you think? Yes. They give more than they receive. They give more than, okay, so it's because of charity. Charity, they're, they're givers. Okay, they give more than receive. Yes, I would say that's a good sign. It's a sign of giving. You can see that a person's a giver here. It's a sign of being, being humble. A sign that he's being humble, which is also a sign of righteousness. And the other one is sort of conning the other person. Right, he's for sure a thief, you know, somewhat. Or, or, well, not a thief, because at the end of the day he's making the money. But he's, he's, he's tricking him into it. Yeah. Um, it's like uh, more truthful in a way. Like it's, it's like... Somebody is going to follow through with, with, with what they say. If they're always like exceeding expectations, you can... Uh, He's never lying. He's always truthful. Yeah, I mean, like, and, and you can be sure that they're going to deliver every time. And, and they're like, they're, they're holding themselves to their own obligations that right. they say. And not going to do less than what they say. Right. Yes. 
100%. They, they are truthful. That's another sign. You see how many values we're finding? Humility, honesty. Right, what else did we say? Chaz, what did you say? They give more than givers. They us. You see how many signs we're seeing? I think there's another sign as well. And it's basically what, you've, it's basically what you said, Eitan, as well. But it's a sign of you see what you get, right? When, when you're dating someone, you can't, everyone's acting, right? When you're, when you're with people in public, they're all, everyone wants to be, you know, the good guy. Everyone wants to look good. But are they as good as they look good? So one of the greatest signs of integrity hidden behind the person subconsciously is if he says a little and does much more. Because you can't know somebody truthfully who they are. You don't, it's very hard to see. People put on a great show. You know how I know? How do I know? Look at the divorce rate. People put on a great show and then they get divorced. Well, that's scary. People put on great shows all the time for public use, for my own benefit. We are very different in public as we are in person. It's very hard to be someone who's equally in public as he is in person. Rabbi Yochanan said, they asked one rabbi in the Talmud, give us a blessing. He says, you should be as honest as you are in public as you are in private. That's, that's a blessing. He said, that's it. They said, that's it. That's it. It's all you need. It's a big thing. So the sign of integrity hidden in someone is if they say less and do much more. Very important idea. Okay? But you said all of the different signs of righteousness. Humility, charity, truth. Okay. And then he says, finally, Somebody who says a little and does much more, what's his problem? He, says, he doesn't say a lot. What's his problem? He might be rude. He might be, appear to be rude. He's not speaking. He's not talking to me. Why is there no communication? It doesn't mean, it's not a sign always that it's a bad thing. Not talking, we're going to see later on, is actually a good sign. But the question is, is he not talking with a smile? Listen to this. You ready for some wisdom? This is a Talmud. It says there's some kids that can eventually feed his father a, a good meal. And he kills his father in terms of mentally. Destroys him from the world. Makes him old. And there's some kids that when they get older, they send their fathers to the, the mills to grind flour, which is a, a tedious job. And those kids, is going to bring himself to the world to come. Is a righteous kid. What? Wait a second. There are times when a kid gives his father food, a good meal, and he's evil. Oh, it's the fan. There's times where a kid gives a meal to his father and he's evil. And there's a time where a kid can send his father to work in the mills, grinding flour, and he's righteous. How? The rabbis say like this. This is a, a midrash in, in Yerushalmi. Listen to this. It says, here's how. Here's the story. A son feeds his father a delicious meal in a beautiful home. And what does his, what does his father say? His father sits there and he says, son, how did you get all this wealth? How did you succeed so much? 
So he says to his father, what does it bother you? Why do you care? Just eat. Eat the food and be quiet. Be, eat and f- be quiet. Don't. That's a very bad son. See, serving him a great meal, but then you tell him, be quiet, don't ask questions. And then there's another story of a child that sent his father to grind flour. Why? Because that child normally grinds the flour and makes money. But then his father's old and the king sends a letter saying, I want this man, his father, to come and work for the king. The king says, every, it used to be, every family had to send somebody to work for the king. The king needs workers. He had to work for the king. So what does the son say? Abba, dad, you take over my business of grinding the flour and I'll go and work for the king. Because when you work for the king, you never know when it's going to end. Especially if it's a dictator. I'll work for the king. Dad, you take over my business. And that's a child that goes to the world to come. It's not about what you say. It's about how you say. Right? You could do the nicest things. You could say to yourself, hey, honey, I did so much for you in this relationship. Why are you not happy? Well, it's not about what you do. It's how you do. It makes all the difference. A person can give charity and says, hey, take it, you filthy animal. Right? <laughs> and throw the money at him. And tell him, get out of here. Take the money, you filthy animal. Keep the change, was it? Keep the change, you filthy animal. Throw the coin at him and say, leave me alone. And there's others that say, here's some money and I bless you that you should be successful. You should go well. It's different. Exactly. What's the reason behind what you're doing? It's not only about giving. There are parents. It's a scary thought because a lot of times we go through life. We say, okay, I've done stuff. But did we really do it with the right intention? That's the question. What would you say, this is your thing kind of Yes. People who may give a lot to charity, but the large reason for giving to charity may be tax benefits. Is that righteous? You may be helping out hundreds or thousands of people. And it's a good thing. Of course. But the reason behind it is, is tax. So that's a motive that's not negative. Okay? A negative motive would be like, hey, you've asked me for the money that many times, just take it and be quiet and never ask me again. You know, like making them feel really bad. Here, he's ha- he has an ulterior motive to do good. Is that a good thing? And the answer is yes. In fact, our rabbis say, it's really hot by the way. Is anyone else burning? Okay, so I'm sweating from talking. Our rabbis say that a person should always find ulterior motives to do good. Always. Because otherwise you'll never do it. It says you'll always do it for the wrong reasons. Because eventually you'll do it for the right reasons. But as long on condition that you don't spit on the guy's face. That's another whole level. Right? You, you help your dad with the spit in his face. Tell him, be quiet dad, just eat. It's another whole level. Right? So that, that, that is the condition. So if you give a donation... Is it a level of charity? Yes. Is there a higher level of charity? Is there more levels of righteousness in spiritual worlds? Yes. 100%. You can give charity with a smile. You can give it with a sour face. There's a difference. Then there's people that give charity anonymously. That's even greater, Rabbi say. Then there's giving somebody a job. You know that's greater than giving charity? 
giving charity so the guy might not might not survive he'll have a few dollars to run around with for for the next week but if you give him a job that's livelihood and he's not embarrassed to ask it's more embarrassing to receive the money right when it's a, a gift than when it's like hey would you work for me that's much better right that's the biggest gift you can give someone because he doesn't feel bad for his work so when you ask someone for for a job when you, when, you ask, when you offer a job to someone, that's the greatest level of charity in Judaism. Because you're thinking of the motive of that person and how that person feels. Okay. So that's, uh, that's about Shammai and what he said. Let me just go to one more very quickly and we'll finish. Rabbi Gamliel used to say, so he said, by the way, accept everybody. Accept everybody with a smile. Make sure that whatever you do, do it with a smile. Even though you say a little, that's what I was saying. You say a little and you do a lot. So you're not speaking that much, but you do it with a smile. You don't speak a lot, but you smile much more. You're way more valuable than someone who speaks a lot, but is not smiling all the time. Okay, important, important concept. Next is Mishnah number 16. Statement number 16. Rabbi Gamliel used to say, Make for yourself a master. And you'll be out of uncertainty. If you have a master, you have no uncertainties. Rabbi Gamliel used to say, Have yourself a master. Stay away from doubt. And do not accustom yourself to tithe by estimation. Which means... Like this, when a person has a master, what does it say? You are being objective. What does it mean you have, an, have a master? Have somebody that if you are biased to your own self, have somebody that you can ask for you. Why? You will be removed from uncertainty. I want to just finish off with a story. Okay, I'm done. But I want to finish up with this story. There is a story with... A rabbi, his name was Rabbi Zonenfeld. Rabbi Zonenfeld was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, as far as I remember. Um, and he was a tremendous rabbi before the state of Israel. This is the story with Rabbi Zonenfeld. There was a man that was a singer and a cantor in his synagogue for 30 years. He was a, also a Tamid Chacham, a scholar. And he was a cantor and a rabbi and a singer in his synagogue for 30 years. Can you imagine? And finally, uh, he passed away just before Yom Kippur, a week before, two weeks before Yom Kippur. This cantor passes away. Everyone's so sad. Who's going to take over this man's position? They go to the rabbi, Rav Zonenfeld. Who's going to take over this position? Look who passed away. The cantor passed away. And what does he do? Just before Yom Kippur, he says, I want the son of this cantor, of this singer, of the Chazan, I want his son to be the one that takes over the job. And he makes his son take the position. And he takes the position and he does the singing on Yom Kippur. And everyone's shocked. Why? The guy's got no voice. He can't sing. The kids, not like his dad, can't sing. Plus, the Jewish law is... That on Yom Kippur, you're not allowed to have someone that's within 30 days of mourning as a leader of the service. He's too sad. Yom Kippur is a very important prayer. 
You can't have someone that just lost someone within 30 days as a leader. So they said, how can you let this man's son be the leader? He just passed away two weeks ago and he's still mourning his father. You can't let him be the one that's leading the service. How can you let his son lead it? And there's many other, he can't sing. The kid can't sing. He's not the same as his dad. And he's not as a scholar. He's not as wise as his dad. It says that if you want a cantor for your synagogue, you should also look for, you should look for someone that's wise, that's also a scholar, that's a holy man. He's not as holy as his father. So he says, I thought about all these things, the rabbi says. I thought about all these things. But in the ladies' section, his wife, the wife of that cantor, is a, fr- a new widow. She just lost her husband. And for 30 years, every Yom Kippur, she heard her husband. And this Yom Kippur, she's going to come. You think I can imagine what it's going to be like if another man is going to take over her, her old husband, her late husband's position. And every time she hears a different tune that's different to the way her husband used to sing, she's, she's going to say, I miss him. She's going to be in pain. What kind of Yom Kippur will that widow have? So I hear all of your points. It's better to have someone with a good voice. It's better to have someone that didn't pass, isn't mourning. It, I hear all of these points. But I don't hear how we can get away with the pain that this widow is going to go through. She just lost her husband. And she's going to be crying. Where is my husband? Listening to some other random guy singing Chazanot, singing as the, as the cantor. I can't hear it. So what did he do? The rabbi says, I want my, his son. The son of this man to be the cantor. That way this widow will not be upset. That's greatness. Greatness is... He sees the bigger picture. doesn't just think of specifically, okay, this is the law, that's it. thinks of the bigger picture. There's a widow that's alone, that just lost her husband. If someone else takes that position, that's going to be painful for him. That's greatness. Greatness is somebody that can able, who's able to see the bigger picture of the pain of the situation and see hey, someone's going to be in pain if we don't do it this way. And care about that situation as well. Which is, to me is amazing. Anyway, so I hope you guys enjoyed. So these were some of the lessons we learned today. I said to Adchakeva, make sure that you make priorities a priority. And temporary, temporary. Say a little and do much more. Jordan liked that one. And accept everyone with a smile. That means that even though you say a little and do much more. You say a little... So you're not speaking much, but smile. There's people that don't, don't want to speak, but they're also rude. Uh-uh. You don't want to speak, at least smile. Make up for it with your smile. And then, the last thing I was saying is that a person should always have a master and remove himself from uncertainty. When you have a master, you are objective. You have somebody above you that you're listening to that you're not involved with, you can listen to him and he will guide you because they are objective, they're not in your biased situation and they will guide you. That was the last uh, message. We'll talk about that more next week. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed and uh, Shavuot Tov and uh, Shabbat Shalom too.